morning, Legacy Church. It's good to be with you again this morning as we walk through the letter to the Philippian church from the Apostle Paul. And today, I think you're going to find, just as in the last several weeks, God's been very providential, very kind to our church in how these passages have been rolling forward with everything that's going on in the world today. Uh, He's speaking directly to you and me in our today. I think you need to be confident that your Bible is very timely, um, that it is full of practical application because it is the very Word of God. It's the very living, breathing Word of God. And the more I read the Bible and the more I let the Bible read me, the more I see how deeply it speaks to the specific events in our own life and even the lives of everyone around us. I mean, for instance, just look on the news. We have now crested over 500 American cities that are experiencing protests. 500, that's quite a few. Most of the protesting is peaceful. Some of it has been downgraded from peaceful into blood and bricks and rubber bullets. But isn't all of this finding you and me at already an emotionally fatigued time? It's almost easy to forget that we're still in the middle of a pandemic that is complete with an economic recession and high unemployment. And now, our nation, on the backside of all of the fatigue that we've been wearing for months, we see the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. And it finds us exhausted and sad and grieved. And the Bible speaks to all of this very specifically. Very specifically. It's important to study your Bible. It's important to meditate on the truths that are in the Bible. It's important to collect the truth and hold the truth and revisit the truth. Because this is what I hear a lot of in these days. I hear a lot of, I don't know what to do. I'm seeing the news and I don't know what to think. I don't know how to feel. I don't know how to react to these situations. And here's to be totally honest right now. I don't either. (laughs) I don't either. But I do know where to go and get my bearings. I do know where to go to find the living words of God, even to our specific moments today. I know it feels new to you and me today, but racism was not invented by America. Protests did not start last week. These things have been mowing through humanity since the very beginning, and the Bible is very clear on how we hold ourselves in the midst of it all. I think we're going to be led well by Paul today as he approaches this church in Philippi. I want you to to understand the context, the fabric in which he wrote this letter. It was full of rampant racism. Right? It was full of brutish authority figures, mobs that would just start up at the strike of a match and loot anything in, in sight. In fact, we actually have record of this happening to Paul in this very same city that he's writing the letter to. So if you go in your Bibles to Acts 16, which is not our main passage for today, but it's going to be helpful to set up the main passage for today, look in Acts 16, and we're going to find a moment in time where Paul had just delivered a young girl from an oppression. She was demonically oppressed, and she was actually enslaved as well by the men around her and used for money. And so God, through a great power, a great miraculous moment, and a sweet grace to this girl through Paul, delivered her from all of this, from being enslaved, from the demonic oppression, and from those men. And this is what happened right after that. Acts 16, verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates, which is a civil officer, 
tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. I love that word safely. Like they didn't want anything bad to happen to them. It's very hypocritical when you think about it. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay, so this guy, Paul, is writing to this place. This is Philippi. We're reading a letter from a man who has experienced what my friend Jerome Gay calls a magistrate brutality, kind of what we would call police brutality, and he was looted of his clothes and he was beaten by a mob. And all of this is going to be helpful, as I said, as it builds the fabric for his next words. So this is the passage that's going to kind of lead us today. It's in Philippians 3. We're picking up where we left off last week. In verse 1 of chapter 3, this is the word of the Lord for us today. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What Paul is saying is, just to start it off, it's no problem for me to reteach things I've already taught. It's fine. Good things need to be said often, right? And it's a safeguard to you, and it's a safeguard to me. It's just safe for us to do that. That's virtually what he's saying. Listen, the best ministry you can ever deliver is going to be in the service of repetition, okay? You're going to find yourself saying the same things all the time, oftentimes to the very same people, and that's not bad, right? You know how it is. I mean, there's a difference between hearing something all the time and owning it and knowing it, right? There's a very big difference. Repeating something to people, sometimes they semi-understand it, but they don't totally own it. They don't know it. And that's a little bit of what Paul is speaking to right here. I've, I've often told people you don't really know something unless you can teach it, right? Unless you have the ability to give it to somebody else. And so in some of your discipleship moments, whether you're discipling your kids to look more like Jesus, or you're discipling your peers and your friends to look more like Jesus, or gosh, to be honest with you, even people who are very far from Christ, and you are discipling them towards seeing Jesus more correctly, you might find yourself saying the same things repeatedly. And this is good. I know it doesn't feel good, does it? It feels like you need something fresh, like a new perspective with new words to the same old problems. This is what it makes us feel like sometimes, and so we'll feel ineffective because all we have is the same teachings, the same boringly predictable truths to the same problems that we've always seen. But let me just encourage you, this is good. The newest and most unique angle, the freshest perspective, not always the most helpful one, okay? We'll find another passage in Acts 17, uh, ironically, the next chapter over, where Paul is discussing and basically kind of describing what the Athenians look like. And this is what he says in chapter 17, verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. <laughs> okay, So they're just waiting for a new hashtag to replace the old hashtag. They're waiting for the next viral trend to push the, the old viral trend right off the stage. This is the kind of people that they were, and I get this because I'm just like it. 
my ears itch for something new. It's so easy to turn off old familiar thoughts. I mean, whenever someone leads me to a passage in the Bible or a teaching or a book or a discussion of something that I feel like I've heard a million times, maybe you're like me, I instantly start to turn down. I instantly start to turn my brain off thinking, I've heard it, heard it a million times. It's the Athenian in me that wants to do that. I'm looking for something fresh. But repetition of the basics is vital because that's actually what we reach for in times of emergency and in danger. When in difficult times, we grab for what has been ingrained in us. What is instinct is what comes to the surface. This is why if you've ever been through any kind of emergency training like CPR or something like that, it's highly repetitious. Combat training, highly repetitious. Military training of any kind, a lot of athletic training is very repetitious. Why? Because all of your movements and all of your thinking has to flow out of moments of danger, right? So whenever you have flipped into this fight or flight moment and you're loaded with emotions, fatigue, sadness, anger, frustration, fear, all of that comes, we just instantly grab for what's been ingrained, what has been repeated, right? This is where we are today. We're in great trials. And when much of the world is looking for a brand new solution with brand new words to the same old problems, the Bible offers the gospel. The, the Bible offers Jesus. And friends, listen, this is a safeguard to you and me. It's a safeguard. By the way, this is why we are so focused and devoted as a church to preaching gospel-centered sermons, right? Where the gospel is in the center of our sermons. And this is why we train up all of our other preachers to do the exact same thing. God's glory in the person of Christ, who came to live, die, and live again in order to rescue man and redeem all of creation. That's the centerpiece of everything that we call ministry. Everything that we do. When your life finds mobs and brutality and sickness and danger, our hope is that your instinctual grab will be for the truth that you find in the gospel, that your instinct, your reflex is to adore Jesus above all other goods in this world. But friends, this means repetition. It means repetition. So when you have only time and space to grab one skill, our hope is that it would be gospel, the gospel application to that moment and your heart. Now, we're always going to try to bring a fresh perspective with fresh words and illustrations and application, maybe even some fresh jokes. But you don't need me and you don't need anyone to bring you a brand new truth. Don't need that. What we all need is for the Holy Spirit to breathe on the truths that we've already been told several times, that they would come alive in our life and that we would own them and make them our own, that we would know it. This is what we need God for. We need God to lead us away from just hearing things and then walking away and forgetting them, to owning and knowing them. In fact, let's just ask God to do that today, okay? I know that sounds weird. I'm supposed to be in a sermon. We're going we're gonna to pray for just a second. But Father, we thank you for this passage that Paul is, is speaking to his church, and we're able to kind of look in from the outside, but, but ultimately we know it's your word to us, your word to us. And so we pray that in this time, in this passage, Lord, that we would see you clearly. We would see you clearly. We would see what you have done for us. And we'd see how free we are to live a different life as we walk in the light of the truth of what you've done for us. We love you. We thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. What is it that Paul is 
fine reteaching anyway. He says it in the passage, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Find joy, same thing. Find joy in this God who came to rescue and redeem totally despite us. The fact that we didn't bring anything to the table, he comes and he loves us deeply. Next week, we're going to get deeper into the context of the rest of this passage, but I want all of us to pay very close attention to what's around this statement to rejoice in the Lord, right? There's a lot going on here. I mean, before this little passage right here, before this happened, he mentioned preachers that were preaching in such a way to just kind of tighten the screws on Paul's shackles. I don't know how that looked, but they, their, their main motivation was to hurt Paul, right? Also, before this little tidbit in the Bible, we see that he mentions uh, an anxiety and a burden he's carrying because of a sick Epaphroditus that's sitting over here. And he also has a burden to go back and see Philippi. He has a burden to be free and see all of his churches. And then right after he says, rejoice in the Lord, he mentions these dogs, these evildoers who are in Philippi, who are trying to virtually ruin the gospel. See, these are men that are adding behavior to the gospel. It is Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus not drinking, not cussing. Jesus plus church attendance. Jesus plus, you fill in the blank. We still do it today, do we not? When I was putting this together, it reminded me of some of my years in campus ministry and in the very late 90s. I got to do some work at UCLA, and when we would have these giant campus events and many students would get radically saved, there would be cult members in there that would walk these college students freshly minted in the Lord. These are kids that are, are three minutes away from the meeting where they, where they beg God to rescue them, and we see this radical salvation. These cult members walk them back to their dorms saying that they are with us, saying that they are with that same campus ministry, even wearing the same name tag. And these students didn't know any different. You see, new Christians are highly susceptible to weird thoughts because they still are learning the Bible. They still don't know everything. And so Paul is having to deal with this a little bit. And that's exactly what's happening. These people are coming to a young church and they're scooping up these Christians and they're saying, you almost had it right. It's not just Jesus, though. It's Jesus plus a couple things. And we're going to help you out. We're going to tell you what those things are, right? But friends, we've said a million times from our pulpit, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And that's what Paul is really hoping to ground and pound. So this is the setting that's going on. And I, I want you to remember also that he's addressing a church that's got some internal squabbling going on, right? We'll, we'll approach that in the next couple weeks. But there is a group of people putting their interests over the interests of others, okay? So there's internal issues going on. And I want you to remember the obvious. He's speaking from house arrest. He's in prison. Why am I, why am I going through all of the, the factors that are going on while Paul is writing this? Because there's conflict everywhere. There's conflict outside the church. There's conflict inside the church. There's conflict inside Paul. There's conflict inside the people that Paul is writing to. And yet still Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Still he says that. Does that seem like a tone deaf thing to say? Being tone deaf, that's something that's kind of moving through a lot of 
speeds right now. It's a, it's a heavy word, right? To be tone deaf, this person's tone deaf, that person's tone deaf. All tone deaf means is to be outside the experience of a people. To be singing, but singing off pitch, right? To not get it, to not understand, to be out of touch. But listen, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to pastor you towards finding a robust joy in the Lord. Now. Today. Today, of all days, with all the troubles and the thorns and the thistles and the blood and the bricks, today. Rejoice in the Lord. I, I've been on the phone this week with various leaders in the church, some black, some white, but I'm hearing predominantly the same emotions. And they'd be the ones that you would figure, the same ones you are feeling. They're sad, they're grieved, they're angry. There's not just a frustration, but kind of a confused frustration, right? Sure, you're feeling like this too, I would imagine. I know so, because I've been creeping on your social media feeds. I can see that you're sad, and you're grieved, and you're angry, and you're not quite sure how to, how to go about this. It's been a little bit awkward for you, hasn't it? You don't know what to do next, or do you do anything? I mean, do you advocate Black Lives Matter, or do you advocate the police, or can you do both at the same time, or what does that look like, or what are people going to think if I post this, and what are people going to think if I don't post this? Listen, the facts are people are dying. Businesses are smoldering. Hatred and racism is manifesting in a way that you cannot deny it. Brutality is rampant. It's happening. I know all of this, and yet I know that the gospel leads us to rejoice, to lead us to joy. Does this sound tone deaf to you? Or out of order, maybe? Because how we grow up to see joy and sorrow is we're not supposed to have them at the same time. That they're linked, like sequentially connected, like Maybe sorrow, once it leaves, then joy can come, right? That almost seems insensitive to suggest that in the midst of poverty or ruin or cancer or destruction, that there's any authenticity to this thing called joy. Now next week, like I said, we're going to get into the main idea of this bigger passage, which is the next seven verses. This is just kind of the preamble. But I just can't cruise by these first three, voice, this, these first three verses without maybe grabbing a little bit of the mood and the moment of what's going on. I think it's just going to be helpful for us today. Because here's the honest thing. I can't find any reason for Paul to feel joy at all with so much sorrow around him. He is flanked at every angle by sorrow. And yet he's the one writing this letter full of joy to us, telling us to rejoice. I've been around people just like you have that are hurting, but they act like they're not. <laughs> or they're, they're plastering some fake grin on their face, acting like they are rejoicing in the Lord because they think that the Bible is telling them to fake it until they make it. But let me tell you, the Bible is not telling us to do this. The Bible never instructs us to be disingenuous with our emotions. Never. That's not genuine. It's not what God is after. It's not what Paul is teaching. You see, joy is where we feel good. It's a great feeling, okay? It, we'll even call it an emotion, right? But it's not the same thing as happiness. Those are, are conflated, but they're not always the same thing. You see, happiness can come and go pretty, pretty quickly. Same thing with sorrow. And those also are emotions, but joy is much more resilient. 
right? Joy has legs to it. It's persistence. It, it sees the moment as the moment really is. It doesn't say that sad things aren't sad or hurtful things don't hurt. But joy trusts in the promises of God, and it has a long-term view. That's important for us. It's got a long-term view. It's not just simply being chipper, right, or lighthearted or playful. Joy holds us in a steady place. It's like a, like a handrail through a, a place full of jagged glass. Or it's like ballast in a boat that just puts us and holds us and anchors us in a steady place. And joy is actually a fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit carries joy to us in times where it might be really hard to be joyful. And in fact, we see this in Galatians 5.22 as Paul starts to just rattle off a list of what happens when the Holy Spirit does carry good things to us. It brings about love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. You see, joy comes when you and I can see Christ clearly for who he is. When we are given view of Christ, our hearts have no other option but to rejoice. He is that beautiful. And, and not just when we get clear view of Christ, but when we see good things around us that God shows us a picture of him through. So like whenever you're around friends, right? You're around to like your best friends having the best time of your life. And you just kind of look around and you're like, ah, oh, it's so good to have community. Like community is so rich. I love it so much. The reason you have so much joy in that moment is because God is so kind to show you a little piece of himself in that moment. Or whenever you have a good meal, right? Or you see a great piece of art or you hear a beautiful song, the joy that bubbles up in you, that is God's gift to you. He's showing you a little piece of himself if you have eyes to see it. That's what joy does. But here's the question big question. Can we authentically, genuinely experience sorrow and joy at the same time? The Bible says yes. The world says no. Right? The world says change has to happen first. Joy cannot come unless there is change. Injustice has to leave. Pain has to leave. Terms have to be met before joy can enter. The Bible says we can be full of joy and have real authentic sadness at the same time. At the same time. This is how Peter describes it in 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, now he just preached the gospel. That's what that was. And then he says, in this you rejoice. And we do. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Well, isn't that interesting? Notice that trials and grief don't have to exit for joy to come in the room. They could both be in the room at the same time. They're not sequential. They're not binary where one flips off so the other can flip on. Paul actually says something very similar to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, we are treated as impostors and yet are true. As unknown and yet well known. As dying and behold, we live. As punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet 
making many rich as having nothing yet possessing everything. So we can be sorrowful and full of joy at the same time. And doesn't this make sense? If you've been to a funeral, especially a funeral where someone has known Christ, where they were united with Christ in this life, so you know they're united with Christ in the next, those funerals, isn't it a mix? Don't you carry both? I mean, it's, it's not a chipper moment. It's not a happy moment, right? And you're sorrowful because you're not going to get to see that person anymore. You're going to miss them, right? But there's joy. There's joy because you know they are looking Christ right in the eye. And there's joy because you know Jesus has defeated death, so that coffin at the front of the room doesn't get the last word, right? There's both. And then Paul says later to this very same church in Philippi, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I love this. It's like he's rubbing it in. He's like he's making sure that people don't move too, too quickly off of that before they understand. He's saying that always we are to rejoice. It's kind of like when we tell our kids, hey, go put the dishes away. And before you get up, you need, hear me now, go and put those dishes away. All right? Did you hear me? Did you hear me? All right, repeat back to me what I just said to you. <laughs> if your parents, you have either done that or you will do that, right? That's what Paul is doing here to a certain extent. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, again, I say rejoice. Always, though? Always. It might feel tone deaf to rejoice in the days of COVID, in the days of quarantine and injustice and poverty, and hurricane season is upon us. But Paul says, yes, rejoice in the Lord always. Also, I want you to consider how genuine and real you can be with your emotions as you express both, right? Because we serve and love and pray to a God who experiences a full range of emotions without sin, the depth of emotions without sin. I love this about God. No, for instance, no one understands what it's like to lose one to an injustice more than God does. No one does. More than God our Father, who willingly gave up his son. Nobody. Not George Floyd's brother. Not Ahmaud Arbery's parents. Not anybody that's got a brick in their hand. Not everybody that's really been ripped apart because of what they're seeing. Nobody has experienced sorrow and loss and pain like our Father has. No one understands. You feel sadness, and that's real. But you need to know you haven't even plumbed the depths of sadness and sorrow. God is far ahead of you. And he expressed it, and he felt it with zero sin. That's helpful for me. Because, you know, we see injustice out in the streets, and we think, Lord, when are you going to fix this? This is wrong. When are you going to make it right? Not only is he ahead of you, not only has he felt the pain of the same injustice, he, through a bloody cross and an empty tomb, fixes it, along with the promise that he will come back one day and redeem everything that is unjust and make it just. Everything that is wrong, and he will turn it right. So he's ahead of us. And yet, God is the most joyful. Uh, Christ was the most joyful person who has ever lived and walked this planet. No one expressed joy quite like Christ has done. No one has perfectly done it without sin even. He did it. He expressed perfect joy. In fact, Jesus' joy-soaked heart reaches all the way back to before he even came and incarnated and walked among us. He rejoiced in the Trinity for eternity. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit perfectly and fully rejoiced in each other. He has experienced the depth of sadness. He has experienced the depth of joy. And this is who we pray to. This is who hears our prayers. This is who sees our pain. 
Friends, listen. We pretend to be sorrowful when we're not, and that's a sin. Come on. We pretend that we're sad about things that we're really not sad about. We we pretend to be outraged when we're not. That's not what God is after. We pretend to be joyful when we're not. We pretend to rejoice in the Lord when that's not any, that's, that's not at all what we're doing. We pretend. Did you know that you, when you are angry and you are frustrated and you are sorrowful and you are sad, that you are speaking to a father who has experienced it even more than you have? And the same thing with joy. So how do we do this? I mean, if you're sad today, angsty, grieved over a pandemic and racial trauma and the economic disasters that are around us, how do you discover joy? And again, is it Does it feel still a little tone deaf to even suggest it, that we go looking for it? You know, when the city is in turmoil and there's enough pain around us to last 10 lifetimes, does it feel tone deaf? Listen, it shouldn't. You should express your sorrow and your joy to the glory of God. Express your sorrow, but then guide your sorrow to the glory of God. Remember, joy is not an empty emotion. It's not empty. It's an anchor. It's an it's an anchor and stabilizing one. It's one that have, it creates a long view of what God is doing in the background the whole time. But joy doesn't deny the pain any more than sorrow does. We have sorrowful moments with sadness, and yet we hold on to the undercurrent that God is good and we can rejoice in him. I always have this image in my mind of us floating on the top of a body of water and we're just kind of pressed in. Everywhere we, we, we move, we're touching water. And that's kind of the sadness that we have around us today and the tragedy that we have around us today. But friend, there is an undercurrent. There is a strong, powerful undercurrent that is full of joy and rejoicing in the Lord. And we can be in both. We can be in both. When my father was dying and spending his last days on earth, I was honored to be there all the way to the very end. And you can cut the sadness with a knife. Um, There would be jokes every now and then just to try to lighten the mood. But man, it was amazing how quick it went back to a dark, heavy, smothering feeling, right? Definitely wasn't a lot of lighthearted moments and the smiles were brief. And I was sad, I was grieved, but I had a a resounding joy. I had an abundant joy that this death that was defeating my father was in fact defeated by my king and that my father would look Christ in the eyes. There is a joy that walks along sorrow and both can be genuine. Do you see how this works? I have friends that are black and lead churches in racially charged areas right now, and they are sad, and they're hurting, and they feel alone, and they still don't feel heard, all of them. I have friends who have lost businesses. I have friends who have lost ministries. I have friends who have lost loved ones to the virus. And all of this makes me very, 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 very sad. And yet I have a deep undercurrent of joy that's genuine, that holds me together, that gives me hope, invites me to rejoice. Because everything that is sorrowful and sad today, God has done two things. He has felt it as much as we have, 
and he has defeated chaos, he has defeated death, and he has defeated destruction. And one day he will come and rebuild everything. It will be a revolution. So here we have Paul writing this letter, probably still with some scars from the time he was in this city and got beat with rods. And he's experienced brutality and he's feeling the weight of sickness around him and his friends and pain in the church that he can't be there in person to help and pain in himself and pain in the world. And yet he tells you and me to rejoice in the Lord. Friends, listen, we should be sad today and we should rejoice today. We should do both. We should express our sorrows to God, guide them to a place that makes space for joy as well. We should hate the carnage of this world. And we should celebrate the fact that God's going to revolutionize it all. We can be both. There's so much to grieve today too, isn't there? And there's so much to celebrate at the same time. Grieve for your city. And then celebrate the fact that God is building a new one. Grieve because people of uh, skin color that is not like yours, people of color, they are not getting what those who are white are getting. And there is a pain that is felt that is real. And there are parents that are trying to communicate with their kids how they're going to have to grow up in a different world than other kids are going to have to grow up with. I mean, there is that going on. And we need to grieve that. And we need to be sad about this. And then we need to rejoice and celebrate that God is building a new kingdom for every tongue and every tribe and every nation and every skin color where those talks won't have to happen anymore because racism will be gone. It'll be dead. So how do we do this? I mean, if I could just get intensely practical with you for a moment, how do we do this? I actually spoke on this 12 weeks ago when we shot our first video, um, when the quarantine was brand new, and it was to practice and then keep practicing how to lament, how to lament. And we've taught this in classes. We've done it from the pulpit. I know lament's even a viral word right now, and it seems to be something that a lot of pastors are putting on their feeds. But listen, then again, it's no trouble for me to do it again because it's a safeguard for you and it's a safeguard for me. Lamenting is an opportunity to repent. It's an opportunity to be frustrated, to be sad and to grieve and then to trust the Lord and to worship Him and to make room for joy, right? Lamenting is not just being grumpy or complaining. I think that's what clicks in our head. Oh, lament? You mean be grumpy? No, that's not what we're talking about. It's not being grumpy. It's not complaining. It's expressing our sorrow and then guiding it to the glory of God in such a way that makes room for joy. It's messy prayer. It's riddled with questions. It's totally unfiltered. It makes room for honesty, real guttural honesty. It takes the mask off. It leaves all the flowered speech at the door. And it allows us to acknowledge that we don't see what God sees. We certainly don't know what God knows. Yet we trust that he's there, right? I mean, a lot of my times when I'm, when I'm lamenting, I say, God, I don't see you here. I don't see you anywhere. And I definitely don't feel you. But I know you're there. And then I begin to invest trust into that moment. And then slowly, slowly sometimes, Joy comes, and then I see Christ more clearly, and I can walk as a sad, grieved Christian who rejoices and celebrates in the Lord at the same time. When you don't know what to do, 
and you don't know what to think, and you're looking at a problem that refuses to be solved, lamenting is very helpful. It's been helpful for me over the years. It's helped me see God more clearly. It's helped me see my situation more clearly. And it's actually supercharged my prayer life because I feel honest and genuine and authentic. This is how King David does it in Psalm 13. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. That's him expressing it. And when you read it like it's supposed to be read, it should sound like he's expressing some frustration and some anger. But then he guides it. Then he pivots and guides it. But... Verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love, and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Friends, listen, if you are in a place of sorrow today, be genuine with it. Be real. Express it to the Lord, and then guide it to a place of worship. Ask the Holy Spirit today to give you a clear view of Jesus, who he is and what he has done and how we can be free to walk in light of that. You'll feel an undercurrent of joy start to bubble up. But if you choose not to do this, if you choose to continually pretend or be fake and you choose not to deal with this sorrow and you just keep pushing it down in a can and you keep putting the lid back on, you need to know that that pain is not going to go away. It's not going to go away. It just paints another layer of paint over your heart where you become more bitter, less feeling, and less given to joy. I mean, some of you, you have some sorrow and you're not dealing with it. You're not dealing with it. Joy seems like a million miles away for you, doesn't it? I had a friend I was talking to on the phone earlier this week, and we were talking about this very thing, and he, he compared it to a beach ball, blowing up a beach ball and trying to press it under the water. That's... That's us trying to handle sorrow the wrong way. Be full of sorrow and then be full of joy. Now listen, before we finish this time, I want to lead us through a prayer. And I don't want you to click stop on the video quite yet. Right? This prayer is going to be very important for our church. I think it's going to be a, a, a moment for us to, to lament, I guess, before the Lord. And, and I'm, I'm feeling the compulsion to do this because of Jeremiah 29, 7, where it says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Right? So in that frame of mind, I would love to just lead us through a prayer where we can agree together that as exiles and as sojourners, we are going to intercede for our city and our people and its sins, and its future. Okay? So just join me in prayer. Lord God of all comfort, please be with the families and friends of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and so many others who are mourning their loss and are grieving the injustices that led to their untimely death. Please be with those for whom these tragedies have increased fear and anxiety 
because of their own traumatic experiences. Be with parents who are worrying about their sons and their daughters today, knowing that the color of their skin is seen as a threat. And have mercy on us, O Lord, for our blind eyes, in spite of the evidence of deeply embedded racism all around us, we have looked the other way. But Father, too many have died. Too many have suffered. Too many have been looked and locked out, cast aside. There have been so many indignities. There have been too many injustices. Have mercy on us, O Lord, for our hard hearts. For we have cared too little. We have grieved too little. Have mercy on us, O Lord. We have silenced our tongues, our voices. We're not raising them with any prophetic rebuke or anger. Our feet are not stepping out quick enough into justice alongside those who have found courage. Father, empower us. We need your strength to step beyond the blindness and the indifference and the fear. We don't make any grandiose promises, any big plans today because we know how easy it is to make those and then just forget them. But we do know we can't be the same. Lord God of all comfort, let your name be elevated and honored in the Knoxville metro area. With all that we honor, let your name be honored more. With all that we miss and long for, let your name be more. With all that we desire and hope for, let your name be more. And may Jesus, the hero of our lives, and the centerpiece of the good gospel, let this Jesus be adored and enjoyed as the greatest person in this city, our truest hero. Let his name be called out in celebration among every tongue, in every tribe, in every nation, in every skin color. Father, visit this city. Our home is here, but it's not really here. I mean, we're sojourning, we're exiles, but we love this place. I love Knoxville. I love the springtime here. I love the mountains. I love the lakes. I love the rivers. I love football. I love the campfires. I love the falling leaves. I love our downtown. I love our great culture, the food, the arts, the people, the very diverse people, all of them in your image. This is my home, but it's not really. You've given it to us to steward for your glory, and so we intercede today. Father, we lift those in prayer who have experienced police brutality because a great injustice has been done. We lift those in prayer who have been brutish that they'd be brought to repentance. We lift those in prayer who have lost friends and family to racism. For that sorrow, is, it's very hard on the soul. We lift those in prayer who grew up to be racists that they'd see with different eyes, even the eyes of Jesus. We pray for the racism that might linger in the cracks and the crevices of our own hearts because the gospel is perfect for racists. We pray for our lack of listening and understanding. Father, bend our ear to understand an experience that's not our own. We pray for people who are protesting for your glory. You understand that. You, press, you protest as well for marginalized people. Lord, we also pray for those who are protesting poorly, that they would see, Father, that the justice that you deliver is far superior to the justice they are bent on delivering themselves. We pray for the police 
and all first responders, for their job is excruciatingly difficult and it's very dangerous and it's deep in sacrifice. We pray for their safety. We pray for their endurance. We pray for our civil leadership that they'd have the wisdom and the kindness of Solomon. We pray for the downcast and the brokenhearted and the scared and the angry. We pray for the dark places of our city to see the light of Jesus. We pray for the miracles of reconciliation that we're going to need to see any lasting harmony here. We pray for an end to this virus. We pray for a healthy economy for all tax brackets. We pray for the peace of God upon our people. God, we pray for change. Oh Lord, do this in our midst. Do this in Knoxville. Do this at Legacy. And do this in us. Oh Father, we love you. You are so good and kind and thoughtful. Amen. Amen. I love you all. I'm looking forward to seeing you soon. I hope you have a great week. If you need anything, you can find us on the front page of the website and connect with us towards any need that you might have. But until then, I look forward to seeing you again in the future. Have a great day.